We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The CV, CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's just a Nissan Frontier, but in my mind, this thing's an M1 Abrams tank. Honey, take the wheel. I'm going to stick my head out of the sunroof. Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The CV Report. Welcome to the CV Report. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Here to slice and dice military-themed news and veteran lifestyle stories, all for your listening enjoyment. And this episode's powered by Radio.com, your free radio app for sports, music, news, talk, and listening to stations from all over the country and over a 1,000 podcasts. Listen live anytime, anywhere. Download the Radio.com app from your app store today. All right, we have a very interesting show for you today and an incredible guest. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer with deep experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. But beyond that, Dan Gabriel is also the director and executive producer of the new film Mosul, which is just an incredible combat documentary. In a nutshell, it's about the Iraqis united to reclaim the city of Mosul, this time from ISIS. An embedded journalist follows along with the Iraqi forces, Sunni tribesmen, Shiite militias. I mean, literally right there in the thick of the fighting. Uh, we're going to hear some clips from the film and we're going to talk to him about the making of what really is a front row seat to the defeat of ISIS. And uh, some of the scenes are just jaw dropping. But first, we'll do some headlines. And like we enjoy doing at the top of the pod, we get the news we can use from our very own reporter, Libby Howe. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Phil. Good times. Good times. You brought here kind of a contentious story, sort of an argumentative story to start the week off with. And uh, happened over the weekend, and it involves the military and politicizing the military, which, let's face it, they always do. Every single political appearance in front of military troops is always them wrapped in a flag, wearing a hat, supporting the troops. I mean, you know, it's what politicians do. But pretend for a moment that I know nothing of the USS John McCain and Trump's recent visit to Japan. Not sure how you could have not seen this last week, of course. And I'm still kind of on the fence about whether or not it really needed to be a news story. But there's this whole situation where... Someone told someone told someone to hide the USS McCain for Trump's visit to Japan because we all know how Trump feels about McCain. So get the ship out of the way to make sure that he doesn't have a hissy fit in the middle of his troop visit. And since then, 
we've kind of tried to follow the paper trail and see where this email came from, who was aware of this email, who did what. And now we've got this whole issue of, hey, we shouldn't even be talking about this news story. It wasn't even an issue at this point. The White House is politicizing the military and the Pentagon has said stop. Now, let's back up just a bit because you said the email. So we know for a fact that the request was made to the Defense Department to move the USS John McCain. Right. And there was an email. I can't remember which news outlet broke it first. It might have been CNN, might have been someone who got their hands on the email, but it came from the White House and the line in it, I would have to go look it up, but it was USS McCain should be moved or USS McCain to be moved or hidden. I don't think they used the word hidden, but it was. It was a one line amongst all of these other instructions about the president's visit, one line that had USS McCain moved, USS McCain hidden, something like that. Hmm. The Navy was very careful about what they put out about it, which also was fun because the Navy chief of information Twitter account seems to have been reactivated purely to respond to this situation because that account has been inactive for Lord knows how long and it reactivated right around the time when all this happened so that they could put out a tweet that said something like the USS McCain was not covered during the president's visit, which isn't inaccurate. It wasn't covered but it was before there was a tarp over it and they tried to move it. And we know now that the crew of the USS McCain was put on leave for that day and they were paying attention to what hats people were wearing and what patches they had on. So the Navy was very careful to put out a statement that was partially true, but left out a lot of the details as well. (laughs) Which is sort of ridiculous because one, I mean, you put the crew of a ship on leave. I mean, you got plenty of kids milling about the base at the McDonald's and the PX or whatever, wearing their hats on their ship. It's not like you're not going to, it's like you're not going to run into a kid with a McCain hat. Right. I mean, so that's just, that's part of the media that I think is just stoking that fire. Uh, if you want my humble opinion on that, which I think we kind of are similar on. That's I mean, why we let you run the podcast, right? Because we want your opinion, or at least that's the guys <laughs> that we're operating under. <laughs> well, I, I'll share with you this. Here's a soundbite taken from the Talking Heads. I believe this is uh, Meet the Press from NBC over the weekend. And uh, this is Mick Mulvaney, of course, the White House spokesperson there, uh, talking to Chuck Todd. And I just want you to – I just want to point out that, like, the headline – about the White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney's comments really mischaracterized his whole argument. Now, NBC ran with the headline here for this clip we're about to hear. Mulvaney, moving the USS John McCain was not an unreasonable thing to do. But listen to what he actually said. The fact that some 23 or 24-year-old person on the advance team went to that site and said, oh my goodness, there's the John McCain. We all know how the president feels about the former senator. Maybe that's not the best backdrop. Can somebody look into moving it? That's not an unreasonable thing to, to, to Seriously? ask. Seriously? Now, did you catch what he said right there? That's not an unreasonable thing to ask. Like, you heard him say ask, right? right? That's not an unreasonable thing to, to, to Seriously? ask. Seriously? But yet all the headlines in the media say, uh, you know, moving the USS John McCain would not be an unreasonable thing to do. He never said it'd be unreasonable to do. He said it's not unreasonable for a staffer to ask that. And that's where I come to you and say, have we not had some, have I personally not had some absolutely ridiculous ideas posed during our brainstorming editorial meetings? You have, for sure. Definitely. (laughs) And I think that at first listen, the semantics of ask versus do aren't significant. But then when you think about it a little more, there is a pretty significant difference between something that you ask and something that you actually do. Right. And that's just where I think this is more like, 
everybody's looking to throw shade and everybody wants something negative to say and everybody wants to jump on something and be the first to squirt out the big story. And to me, it's just people arguing over nothing, man. Like, look, they, they didn't move the ship. They didn't ban M McCain hats, not, uh, not to, you know, on base that day. I mean, like, come on, man. Not to give you the misconception that I think that Trump is not ridiculous. I do think Trump is ridiculous. And I think it is right. ridiculous that he's fostered this environment where some 23, 24 year old staffer felt the need to ask. I don't think that it was ridiculous for the staffer to ask because this is just someone doing their job, trying to make sure that they don't create some sort of crisis for the White House to handle. The fact that the staffer asked, not ridiculous. The fact that Trump has created this political environment where we have to make sure he doesn't throw a temper tantrum, that's a little ridiculous, in my opinion. But for us to be like making news stories out of every potential fart and whoever smelt it, I mean, that's just, that's a damn shame. And that's, that's true. I, and I don't want to blame it all on the president. I don't want to blame it all on a single administration. I don't want to blame it all on Mick Mulvaney. I don't want to blame it all on a single news outlet. But I just think we're in a culture now where, damn, I mean, you wake up wanting to fight. I mean, you just you wake up looking for a reason to find a reason to argue. And that's some bullshit. But of course, when you work <laughs> in the media, you cover what trends. Yes. And sadly, we don't even control what trends once the big media institutions yep. get the ball rolling. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to follow what rolls downhill. Libby Howe, thank you very much for bringing us Topic Du Jour. I look forward to more reporting from you later this week. Thanks. All right, our guest on the CV report today has an exciting movie. And Dan, before we get to your movie, can I just read? I, I just want to share the film's synopsis because it doesn't really do justice to just bring you on here unless I set the stage. So, Please do. In the fall of 2016, an army of over 100,000 Iraqi soldiers and militiamen mobilized to liberate Mosul, Iraq from the clutches of ISIS. Among them is embedded Iraqi journalist Ali Mullah, who witnesses the temporary alliance between Sunnis, Shiites, Christians, and Kurds, all of whom have differing motivations in the region, but are motivated by a unified goal of freeing their country from the scourge of ISIS. The road to Mosul is no easy path, and it provides a snapshot of the controversial and larger-than-life characters who are impacting a political climate that has reached its boiling point. <laughs> As we near the end of Ali's journey, we encounter a jailed ISIS prisoner who reveals the haunting truth behind his organization. In the aftermath of the largest siege since Stalingrad, sectarian conflicts begin to reemerge and the tactical victory is met by a stark realization. And that is our war against ISIS may be over, but the seeds of another conflict have already been sown. I got to say, Dan Gabriel, you have put together one hell of a cool movie. Well, I hope it's as good as that intro you just read. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank your publicist for that. But Thanks thanks for having me here, Phil. I, I love talking about this film uh, to vets because it really is their film, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think one of the really interesting aspects of this one particularly is that it's, it's actually an Iraqi story. Um, so the faces that we see, the people that we meet in the film are, are actually Iraqis. Um, and, and no English is spoken. There's uh, English subtitles and an English language voiceover. But it's this is really a story of Iraq, uh, of the Iraqi people coming together in the last battle of the Iraq War. So um, to the extent that the U.S. is involved, uh, the sacrifices of, of our troops and 
uh, so forth. Going back to 2004, 2005, uh, I was actually in Fab Marez uh, in Mosul at that time. Um, you know, I think it's really an emotional uh, and personal story. Mosul is to, to veterans. Mm, amazing. Now, before we get into how it was constructed, because that right there is like my first question, like how in the hell do you p- extract a story from like what's going on in the middle of a war? Um, I want to first shine a light on your insight into this. Uh, geopolitical affairs are kind of your bag as you've spent your career not in the military, but with the company. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. Yeah, the, the shady guys down the road, right? So I spent nine years with the CIA. I was a counterterrorism officer. Um, I did get the uh, opportunity to go to Iraq in 2004, 2005. Part of that time I was in Mosul. actually got to Fabmarez the day they blew it up. I think it was December 21st. Hmm. Um, lost a lot of good people that day. So, you know, the agency's a bit, uh, certainly a, a different experience in the military, number one, because you can leave at any time. Uh, and you're, you're a civilian. Uh, but you do get the honor and the opportunity to work with veterans, uh, people like yourself, and, and so many of your guests that you've had on uh, I've, I've come in contact with in the last couple months as, as we've been screening this film across the country. Um, so it's a great honor, uh, and it's it's an important mission that the agency does. Um, and frankly, you know, they can get us into wars, they can get us out of wars, and, and they can keep the warfighter uh, safe or less safe uh, during the conduct of an operation. So it's, uh, you know, we take it seriously. I have to say, um, as we were talking, I have family that has been in service in the clandestine industries for, you know, going back, gosh, decades now, uh, my stepfather uh, and my brother. And I have to say, one of the most touching things I've ever done was go to the museum inside Langley uh, that's dedicated uh, there on the first floor to the war on terrorism. And the agency layer is often first. I remember the one uh, uh, thing within the museum there that was about Afghanistan and how, mm-hmm. like, it was agency guys that were riding right. horseback along with tribal Afghanis just within hours of 9-11. That's right. And, and the first uh, the first U.S. person killed in, uh, after 9-11 was uh, Michael Spann, who was a CIA guy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that museum you referred to over the course of my time at the agency, which, which started in 2003, uh, it frankly got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, as, as the agency's role expanded across the world in the different places we were operating in, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and beyond, um, to, to parallel uh, you know, what was going on with the, the global war on terrorism. I, I haven't been in the agency since 2012, so I, my understanding is you know, there's, there's been a shift, and we're kind of going back to the more traditional uh, intelligence uh, collection and gathering these days. Um, but certainly during the, during the period of time that I was there and, and my colleagues, um, we were focused on one thing one thing only. It was – was the Bin Laden mission? You yeah, know, um, that's why I joined after 9/11, um, and it's no coincidence that I left shortly after uh, they got him. So, yes, yes, they did, and a job well done. And another cool part of the, about that museum I'll never forget is uh, the mock-up of the compound where they got Osama bin Laden, and there's actually Osama bin Laden's rifle, like the gun he was holding, and they pried it from his cold, dead hand. So. Uh, Again, man, just a testament to the great things that the CIA is capable of doing and and how they lead the fight, even though they're never seen. Now, let's get to the movie, because with all that as your background now, you're well healed to understand the climate and the politics and kind of what's going on over there. But how does one even begin to say, I want to make a movie about uh, the fight for the demise of the caliphate and ISIS? And, you know, you are... As near as I can tell, a total American. You're, you know, a uh, white guy, green eyes. You know, I mean, you, how did you even begin to venture into making this film? 
Well, as, as you've already uh, kind of referenced, look, the CIA is a place that's full of stories, fascinating stories. Um, but it's also a place you can't tell stories when you're when you're working there, or to some extent, when even after you leave. Um, so the story of Mosul, to me, having had some personal experience there in in '04, and then uh, you know watching, frankly, its rise and fall, and rise and fall again, and then rise subsequent to that, uh, was you know it, it was an extension of a lot of the things that had happened during the the, the early years of the Iraq War. Um, it was also a measure of the cost of the sacrifice of, of veterans that had served over there and, and, and been wounded and killed in action. Uh, so going back to why it's such a personal story and an emotional story, certainly for veterans and certainly for ones that were in Mosul, of which there there are many of them as I'm coming to see, uh, mm-hmm. just engaging audiences around the country. Um, you know, lo- losing Mosul to, uh, to ISIS, the second largest city in Iraq, falling to ISIS was just, it's just, unfathomable. Uh, I mean, it, it really uh, put in question uh, the sacrifice that they had made. So I think that this film, which obviously concludes with the liberation of Mosul, uh, that was, by the way, a foregone conclusion. We, we knew that the, the Iraqi forces, uh, the security forces, literally having pretty much the entire world behind them, uh, would ultimately defeat ISIS in a geographical and political sense. The question is what becomes after ISIS, what happens after ISIS um, and that's kind of one of the underlying themes of the film that, that I want the viewers and the audience to think about is what, you know, what, are, what, what happens next in this region. So this was filmed between October 2016 and July 2017. Walk me through the chronology of it now, because I know we start and the trailer, by the way, just ugh, sends chills up and down your spine. And certainly if you've been a GWAT era veteran that served over there, I mean, this will touch your heart. But Give me the chronology now. We're 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 following the journey of a uh, of embedded cameramen that are alongside mm-hmm. Iraqi forces, and the trailer even opens up with like a scene of this convoy of 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 up armored vehicles and everything waiting along this dirt road, and then there's night visuals of like people on a river. Mm-hmm. Can't give up their exact location, but they're getting ready to invade Mosul and kick the hell out of ISIS. But walk with me now, kind of the chronology of the story. Sure. So, um, you know, we, we began filming in October 2016 and, and ended in July 2017. So it was about seven or eight months. Um, what I want you to think about is Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now. So this is, this is what was in the back of my mind when I kind of constructed the storyboard. Very obviously, he has gone insane. This is the end. Um, we would travel from Baghdad to Mosul over the matter of you know six, seven, eight, nine months, uh, and as we go further and further up the Tigris River, the, the journalist, who's kind of our perspective through which we see the film and, and experience what he experiences, things get more and more weird and weird. The characters that we meet become more odd and odd as we go along. Uh, until the end, we, we sit down with an ISIS detainee who's, who was a senior recruiter for ISIS. His name's Nasser. And Nasser tells us very matter-of-factly the ideology and, and explains it in as much logic as he can uh, gather. Why he believes what he believes. And it's, it's just chilling. There's really no other word for it because it's very so simple and straightforward that he, he reveals um, you know, uh, the justification for what he, what he believes in. And, and how he convinces others to do the same, whether that's online radicalization or groups in Madras or whatever. Mm. One of the most chilling parts of it in the long format of the trailer was when he said something to the effect of, like, you have me, but I have trained dozens of people to think like me, so right. it doesn't matter what you it, do to me. Exactly. 
كفكر اسلام and we that, that's how we in the film with with that quote kind of reverberating through the journalist's head الفكر على صواب انا على صواب اذا وجد الفكر وجد القتال لحد الموت لن تؤمن بفكره الموت الموت قال And again, going back to ISIS, the caliphate, is it destroyed? Is it defeated? Uh, if you think of it in terms of a geographical or political entity, sure, it's been destroyed. They've been pushed out of Raqqa and Mosul. But in terms of the ideology uh, and the ability for it to regenerate um, in a different form, in a different part of the world, perhaps, it's, it's certainly still there. We see it as recently in Sri Lanka. Tell me about some of the biggest challenges of making this movie. Now, were you along with Ali while this, no, while the I, cameras were rolling? No, because th- thankfully, I, I haven't actually been to Mosul since 2005. So this this was coordinated and produced with me kind of working remotely with these guys. Um, but yeah, we had uh, several different film crews ap- approaching the operation from uh, different sides uh, uh, of the battle. And uh, just you know, really incredible bravery on the part of these guys, uh, these Iraqi journalists telling the story through through their eyes and really embedded with the units and you can even see the way the troops interact with with the with the camera guy for instance uh, they have a they have a mutual admiration for for each other and, and what they're doing the troops for, for the journalists wanting to tell the story and the journalists for certainly the, the incredible sacrifice that the, the soldiers are making you'd said something earlier in this interview that I keep thinking of while I'm imagining journalist running around with cameras trying to get footage of these battles and 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 cover what it looks like on the street level you'd said you thought it was a foregone conclusion that we would win or that the iraqi right. military forces would eventually defeat isis did they on the ground believe that yeah I, I, certainly i think uh frankly the human shields and hostages that were you know living under isis rule uh it was a it was a nightmare that perhaps may never end in their in their imagination uh, but I, I think the forces that had unified the Iraqi security forces that were involved in the operation, I mean, it was just militarily an overwhelming um, imbalance of forces that we're talking mm. about here. I mean, the, the high number of ISIS fighters was never more than 10,000. We're talking many, many, many more than that. I mean, maybe 100, maybe 150,000 Iraqi security forces. So, um, you know, the question would be how many civilian casualties? Recent numbers say maybe there were 40,000 civilian casualties. Uh, what's the final uh, level of destruction of the city? I mean, it's in the west part of Mosul. It's pretty much total. It's Stalingrad level. So at a very high cost. But yeah, I mean, ISIS wasn't wasn't going to have their flag flying over Mosul for you know for a decade. What's the phrase that I see used on the website too? That's part of this film. It's something about how you have to destroy yeah. a city in order to for, for the nation to endure. A city must die. And I mean, it, the, there's. There's definitely that's a that's a thread through the film in the sense that you know Mosul had to be completely destroyed. I mean, it was completely destroyed, certainly to free it. Um, but the hope, I think, is that the the concept of Iraqi nationhood and the concept of an Iraqi state uh, will grow from the sacrifices that the Iraqis made there, uh, from the Americans before them, uh, and from the terrible carnage that was uh, that was experienced there. And that's, I mean, that's that's what we hear the different characters in the film talking about, how the future is, is positive, it's hopeful. So it, it does have a kind of an optimistic uh, feeling to the film, but there's also absolutely a cautionary tale at the end, and that's, and that's why we end it the way that we do. Let's chat briefly about that. Um, I've learned quite a lot along the way, and I've learned that over there there's Kurds, and there's the Sunni, and then there's the Iranian-backed Shia, and... 
there's all these forces that come into play and that inherently many of these tribes don't like each other. Right. Yet for this film's purpose to defeat ISIS, they came together. How long can that last? Were they ever fighting each other during these battles to take the city of Mosul? Right. No, uh, they they were. I mean, look, you, you've you've hit on the central theme of the film, and, and where we are right now in Mosul is is kind of like 1945 in Berlin. You know, with with one conflict in the rearview mirror being the defeat of Nazism, uh, and the next Cold War on the horizon. I mean, not even on the horizon, literally already in, in process with the with the West and and the Soviet bloc. So these groups uh, did an admirable job of coming together and 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 bringing unity to the forefront to accomplish their objective and their mission. Unfortunately, we already hear stories now about some more growing sectarian issues uh, in the country. Um, and it's uh, it's been something that's been a problem since really 2004, 2005, when, during their first elections, and trying to, you have a Sunni minority uh, and a Shia majority. Um, and when Saddam was removed from power, there was a, there was a power shift because the, the, the minority was no longer in control of the majority. It was the way we have it in you know popular democratic nation is the majority rules, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you know, trying to get society to a point where they can accept that and understand that that's been through what the Iraqi people have been through uh, is not something that happens overnight. And, and there, there are definitely uh, phases to it. And, and we're not at the final phase by any means. And, wow. You know, just, just to bring in Iran for a second here, uh, what you do see in the film, uh, the question is raised, uh, are the seeds of the next conflict present there? And they, and they very well could be. Mm. What I like about working here, what I like about talking to filmmakers like you and people with the experience and the veteran services, that you, I mean, the veterans with the service background and everything, is that you've seen things and you understand things that I think civilians don't. And while our audience is primarily veterans on this podcast, I hope that it bridges a civilian-military divide. What I want to always try to carry across that bridge to the civilian side is, what is it we don't understand about the people of those nations. How can they keep fighting over things and ideology and blowing their buildings up and and making their towns shredded with bullet holes and dust-covered just wasteland? We had our own civil war in this country that brought us to the brink of hating each other, North versus South. Mm-hmm. But we got past it, seemingly, because we wanted to forge a good nation, and I just got back from Hilton Head, South Carolina, where I I, I felt welcome, even though I came from Maryland. Well, you're, you're below the Mason-Dixon line here, so. I, 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 I suppose. <laughs> I, I might not be welcome I there. Saw I'm New from Yorker. Boston. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, I saw New Yorkers there. We seemingly figured this out in 200 and some years. What drives them to want to kill each other for a thousand years and live in towns that are just blown apart? Well, I think that Nasser, you know, makes an attempt to explain the the justification for uh, for his ideology, for their ideology, and it's it's a very black and white um, uh, fundamentalist view. So, in, in in foreign affairs, we call it it's a Salafist or a Wahhabist kind of interpretation of the religion of Islam. Uh, but there's more to it than that, um, and it's not just about religion. There are also economic factors and and political factors that come into play. You don't have to be a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew to understand that if you're the party that's not in power and your rights are being taken away from you or you're being abused, uh, 
that doesn't feel good. You know, uh, the, the difference is that in a fully functioning or close, let's call us close to fully functioning civil society. We're kind of functioning. Kind of functioning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are, uh, I guess, processes to go, go through uh, to find common ground and to find, you know, um, compromise, right? And to work, to work through solutions. But when you have a, when you have a complete breakdown of that civil structure and that civil order, um, then the, the radical view can seem like the better view. And then in this case, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't a lot of, uh, soldiers that ultimately, you know, um, you know, defeated, uh, Mosul, the, the initial security forces right. that took the city. Uh, it was, it was a small group, but what they, what they piggybacked on was an existing suspicion and distrust and hatred and bigotry. I mean, all, all these different elements and, and lack of uh, economic opportunity. So all these things come together um, and bad things can happen then. But if I didn't like the leader of my country and someone came into my town and wanted me to also hate that leader and wanted me to start shooting people and start blowing things up, I would simply say, well, my hatred does not exceed my desire to go to Starbucks or to have Walmart or to have strip malls or to enjoy the fruits of our society. Is it silly for me to ask the question, why don't they get that? Well, look, then, then we get into human psychology and you get to a point where you have a, a totalitarian system like this. Um, and in this case, a, a Sharia rule of a you know, basically Sharia law. Uh, you know, you're going to go to mosque on time or you're going to get whipped. You're going to have your beard much longer than yours is right now for certain. Uh, you, you can, I mean, you, it's barely you, stubborn right, at this point. You know, so there are, there's rules and, and you're going to follow the rules or, or you'll be punished. And as, as, as that takes a root in, in the human psyche, um, you get into this group think and everybody's doing the same thing. Why? Because he's doing it. Huh? So the thought that we could show them the way right is the thought that we could on the back end of the, uh, OEF, OIF, engagements, the thought that we could just build strip malls and Walmarts and everyone would suddenly realize that, you know, 72 channels on cable and a pool in your backyard, that's the life, bro. Don't go killing each other. That could never take seed or never take root over there because they are so fundamentally entrenched in religious law. Well, I, I hope, I, I think that the hopeful answer is they might. And my favorite character in the film is uh, is Captain Allah, and he actually talks. He compares their experience to World War II for the Japanese. Um, he's he's drawing uh, comparison to say, you know, the Japanese after World War II. I mean, they were certainly you know beaten pretty good. Two nuclear bombs gone off in their country, but yet they were able to to come together and, and build you know just a, a highly functioning society within a pretty short time. Um, so that's the whole discussion uh, that we open up with with the interview with him. That's one of the discussions. Wow, amazing stuff! All right, well, the film is Mosul. Where do I find this film? Best place is iTunes. I would say uh, it's the best quality, and I think it's the cheapest right now. You can download it on iTunes. Uh, it's also available on Amazon or DVD or Blu-ray as well. But it's uh, if you go to Mosul-film.com, you can learn more about the film and the filmmakers. I want to say thank you for your work, uh, not only on the film, but uh, in the clandestine services. I'm so proud and honored to know somebody else in that family. And every time I get to meet somebody, your understanding of the world and then being able to translate it through this film, I think helps us all maybe understand this confusing world we live in. And as we go on to our 18th year of conflict over there, um, you know, it's movies like this that maybe will help us. And certainly those on the other side of that civilian military the, yeah, bridge absolutely, really get our heads around what is going on in the world. 
um, I don't want to wrap it up like a sports show, but if you had <laughs> predictions based on your services and what you've experienced through these brave journalists that made this movie, um, if you had to make a prediction, if you if you were a betting man, I mean, do you think we have 10 more years of arduous fighting until we start to see a turn? 20 more years? Is this something in our lifetime we could possibly see those regions begin to heal from and start to get life right? I think we're talking decades, like more more than one or two. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, changes very slow, and especially in that part of the world. There's uh, with the you know the the birth of the three great religions right in this you know, in the same uh, in the same uh, area. It's just the stakes are so high and, and passions are so inflamed. Um, yeah, I think it's going to take a long time. Wow. All right. Well, it is a great movie. I can't wait to watch more of it. Dan Gabriel, director, executive producer of the film Mosul. Appreciate your time, bud. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it, man. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.